Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Bunker Daily. I'm Andrew Harrison. Even 75 years after his death, Adolf Hitler casts a long and dark shadow over our present. The question of how the most civilised and sophisticated society in Europe could collapse into genocidal barbarism becomes harder, not easier, to answer over the years. Did Hitler exercise some mesmerising power over the German people? Was he their willing agent, or was the truth even more complex than that? In Britain, war mythology has become the engine of our own petty nationalism, and as the years pass, it seems we understand less, not more, about Nazism and its architect. So how is it that in the 21st century, we are losing our understanding of what the historian Lawrence Rees called a warning from history? Our guest today should be able to help. Professor Frank McDonough is an internationally renowned expert on the Third Reich, the author of the books Hitler and the Rise of the Nazi Party and Gestapo, and he's just published the second and final volume of his history of the Third Reich, The Hitler Years, Disaster, 1940-1945, the clue in the title. Hello, Frank. It feels a little bit tasteless to say this, but welcome to the bunker. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm fine, Andrew. Yeah, I'm fine. So your two volumes are a meticulous history of exactly what happened when in Hitler's rise and the downfall that destroyed Germany. You go into the detail of every significant event and you show Hitler's role, but also that of the wider German political and military elites and, and also chance and circumstance. My question is, why now? Why do we need a full history of the Third Reich in the 2020s? Well, I mean... People come up to me or people say to me every time I have a chat with somebody about the Third Reich and they say, what do you do? And I say, I'm I'm a a researcher into the Third Reich. Oh, not that again. It's on the television all the time. Oh, you know, haven't we heard enough about that? Don't we know everything that happened? And my answer to that is, no, you don't know enough about it because new archives are opening up all the time. Last year, there were 60,000 new books on the Third Reich. To be a historian of the Third Reich, you first of all need to be a polymath. You need to, to, to read a vast amount of information. Then you also need to be aware of all the archives that are on the Third Reich. And there are literally the hardest part of writing about the Third Reich is to, is to find some way through it. So in a sense, because so much is written all the time, very few people can write uh, a history of the Third Reich. I mean, first of all, you, you've got you know you've got you've got to know about Germany. You've got to know German. Um, you've also got to know the English side of it, the Americans, the Russians. So, in, in a sense, you know, most books on the Third Reich. But people always come to me and say, "Ian Kershaw, <laughs> what about Ian Kershaw?" <laughs> and every time I meet with yeah, I say, "I've got a book coming out. What about Ian Kershaw?" And I I, I say. But Ian Kershaw wrote his book 25 years ago. You know, what happens to history books is the same as what happens to anything. They have a short shelf life. And also on the on the point of Kershaw, Kershaw's book is a biography. Mine mm. is a history of the Third Reich. There's a big difference. I'm looking at Germany. I call it the Hitler years. What I mean by that is it's the years when Germany was led by Hitler. It's not exclusively about Hitler. It's actually mm. about lots of other things. It's about propaganda. It's about the economy. It's about how the people in Germany reacted to the war. It's about the battles of the war itself. It's also about uh, the bombing of Germany as well and how the people reacted to that. Um, it's about how Germany occupied various countries in Europe and what kind of regimes that they set up. It's about the relationships within the within the Third Reich between the ministers of the Third Reich. So it's a, it's you know it's a broad history of Germany at that time. So. There aren't that many, you know, when we come to the question of, you know, why another book on the Third Reich, actually, you can count the the big mega histories of the Third Reich on the fingers of one hand, and I'll go Mm. through them. William Shirer, 
His book was written in 1961. You know, has anyone ca- calling for the shadows to come back into into, <laughs> into fashion? You know, so, somebody and, is somewhere. I can, I can somebody, I'm, you, I'm sure uh, somebody's <laughs> like, bring back the shadows. And his book, you know, for example, it's a bit outdated. For example, mm. he calls homosexuality an affliction. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, the, the language of William Shirer is a bit dubious. Um, you know, he calls the occupation of Austria a rape, the rape of Austria. Um, mm. You know, his language is, is, is unacceptable in these days, really. Then we have the book by Michael Burley. He wrote a book in the year 2000. He went right back into the hinterland. So about, you, you don't get to 1933 in his book until page 350, right? Wow. So my book covers the period 1933 to 1945. It's covered as well. It's aimed at the general reader. And the other book that was written on the Third Reich was by Richard Evans. He did three volumes on, on the Third Reich. The first one covers the period before 1933, so it's a totally different period from what I'm looking at. And his next books cover 33 to 39. And then his book, his third book is on 39 to 45. Um, Difference between Burley, Evans and me is that they adopt a thematic approach. Now, a thematic approach is adopted by most academic historians because most academic historians take it for granted that the people they're writing to have some knowledge of the period. So they, they split it off. So Richard Evans' book is not a chrono- chronological study, neither is Burley's. They look at various aspects. For example, Evans looks at youth in one chapter. He looks at women in one chapter. He looks at propaganda in one chapter. He, you know, he looks at the Holocaust in one chapter. And so in a sense, you know, it, it can get a hard going yeah. for, for, the, for the general reader. The general reader's like, hang on a minute, I don't know about... Uh, I don't know about this aspect of the Third Reich. How, how, can you tell me something about it? And he, he'll kind of take it for granted that you know. He thinks he's aiming at, at an academic audience. And so you don't have to explain to an academic audience. So my view was what we needed that's different is a popular history a general history and a history that went chronologically and also to fit in with the way that modern people take in information. You know, people like to watch things in box sets now. You know, there's there's 10 episodes of a box set and they, they split off into separate episodes. So I divide it up by years. Each year is covered from, it starts in January, goes through to December of that year and all of the incidents come out in that year. And it ca- it came to me. I, I'm I'm a big fan of uh, Alfred Hitchcock films. I think they're brilliant. They're brilliantly plotted. And I saw a documentary by Hitchcock uh, in which he explained how he went about constructing these these films. And he said what he did was he storyboarded them. He creates a script. Then he got an illustrator to create every single shot that he wanted in the movie. So what I did was I I storyboarded this book. I storyboarded it first with a chronology of each year. That takes it in a different direction because instead of taking an idea and putting it into themes, I let the chronology lead me onto the research. And the outcome is different. You know, it is different. If you read this book, even if you've never read about the Third Reich, it will surprise you page after page after page. So it's it's perfectly justifiable to have a new 
history of the Third Reich. In, in many ways, we need it because so much comes out every year that it's hard to keep track. Basically, my book, I don't know how long it'll last. I'm hoping, you know, it'll last 10 years. Um, but this is the most up-to-date book that you'll get on the Third Reich now that takes mm. into account all the 25 years since that Kershaw wrote his book, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so my question to you is, well, I have two questions. Before we get into the misconceptions, listeners will not be uh, unaware, will not, have noticed, will not have failed to notice your accents. Is it a myth that, that Hitler was in Liverpool before the war? Because I was always told as a kid, well, Hitler was painting houses around here, you know, before the war. Is that a myth? Well, in actual fact, you know, that's that's my unique selling point, really. You know, the fact that I'm a historian of the Third Reich and I speak with a Liverpool accent. <laughs> you know, there aren't many there aren't many uh, people like that. In fact, when I became a professor, somebody told me I was the first professor of history who came from Liverpool. So, you know, that's another sort of badge of honour at that time. Well, on the question of did Hitler come to Liverpool, because you'll know, you know, people in Liverpool try to, they try to latch on to everything, you know, the, yes. they, the Liverpool, a bit, a bit like Zelig, that film with Woody Allen, you know, where he appears in every incident yes. in history. You know, Liverpool, these like, like to latch on to every single part of history. And people said, you know, Hitler, did he come to Liverpool? I did a documentary actually with Paul McGann. Um, mm. about 10 years ago we did this documentary um, and Paul McGann those of you who are, who are thinking of getting this book Paul McGann reads the audio book he's absolutely he's from Liverpool as well he's a Liverpool fan he lived not far from where I lived when I, when I was growing up I lived in Everton and he lived in Kensington um, and we did this documentary and but what happened was he he was under the impression that Hitler did come to Liverpool and then, of course, he met me, who, who you know, has studied the Third Reich in so much depth. And, and I know that he didn't come to Liverpool. It's It was impossible that he came to Liverpool. And so what I was, we get to the end of this interview and Paul turns around to the producer and he puts his head in his hand and he says, oh, my God, <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> you know, because I, so I showed them ev evidence that showed that it was impossible for him to be to be in Liverpool at that time, you know. For example, he needed a passport to get out of Austria. He didn't. He didn't own a passport. There's mm. no shipping manifest going from the places he could have gone from, which was probably Hamburg. Although Hitler never went to Hamburg from from Austria. There's not no evidence of him being on a shipping manifest either way. Also, drawings he, he drew and he painted while he was in Vienna, and those paintings were sold. Some of the the, the drawings that he sold in that period were sold in, in Vienna at a time when he was supposed to be in Liverpool. He lived in a lodging house as well. And the lodging house was not it was it was not a place where you could say, Oh, I'm going on a holiday now for six months, I'll be back. If you went out of that lodging house, Another homeless person went in and took your room. On to the larger misconceptions then. I mean, you, you, you've revisited this material. You're really deep into it. You understand this, this stuff fully in the round. What for you are the most dangerous misconceptions about the Nazi era, about Hitler, about the Third Reich that are widely believed today? I mean, going beyond whether Hitler ever went to Liverpool. I think some of the misconceptions are, you know, that it was a, it was a socialist regime. That's one of the misconceptions. You know that that it was sort of a socialist regime that was against private property and against capitalism. It wasn't a socialist regime as we know. It was very favourable towards big business. In fact, big business, as you can see, even in the Holocaust, you know, big business plays a huge role in the Third Reich. 
we can even say that big business and the Nazi regime are kind of partners in crime. We look at, say, the death camps, but, you know, Auschwitz-Birkenau, the biggest death camp, it's actually a, a collaboration between a massive company, IG Farben, a chemical company, and the SS. And IG Farben, in return for building a huge rubber plant at Auschwitz-Birkenau, also builds the uh, crematoria and the extermination facilities. So really it's kind of, and most concentration camps in Germany, and there were hundreds of them. There's a map of concentration camps in Germany. You know, there's over over 1,500 concentration camps in Germany, and they were all attached to factories of one type or another, owned by uh, big business in that way. Even when they went and occupied foreign countries, uh, for example, France, Moe and Chandon kept making champagne. They, you know, they, 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 when they went to the Netherlands, Philips, uh, the electronic manufacturer, continued to function, continued actually to be independent, and all of the German businesses continued to be privately owned. So it wasn't, you know, that's a misconception to think of national socialism as a, as a, as a socialist regime. And in fact, Hitler didn't believe one of the main things about socialism. Um, think about the, one of the extreme forms, Chairman Mao's China. Chairman Mao wanted everybody to dress the same and ride a bicycle. Uh, in Nazi Germany, it wasn't like that. Hitler believed in inequality. He believed there were some people who were special and should be at the top of society, who were super talented. And then he went right through society, all the way down to the untermentioned, the people at the bottom, who in many cases he didn't even think had a right to live. Well, you raised the question of the Holocaust here, which is the, the absolute third rail at the centre. And even saying the question of the Holocaust is, is is itself problematic. We hear crude Holocaust denial. We hear apologies that Hitler wasn't aware of the detail or that others in the Nazi command carried it out beyond what he wanted. In your conclusion, your closing remarks, you write that Hitler's obsessive hatred of the Jews set the agenda for the Holocaust, but other dedicated national socialists carried it out. How do you walk that line of examining the facts without providing fuel for, or you know, argument for Holocaust deniers who want to acquit Hitler somehow? I think that you know, Holocaust deniers, if they look at this book and they see the evidence that's there for, for the death camps and the evidence as well for the killing process and also even the accountancy of, of the various extermination camps, the, the survival of so many records, then if you go through that book and you see the meetings that happened, you see what happened in the various camps, you see how many people gave evidence, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people gave evidence at uh, war crimes trials who were actually in the camps themselves. There are so many voluminous documents that have survived that it's, it's, it's impossible to argue that the Holocaust didn't take place. And in this book, the Holocaust is, is a big theme in the book. 1942, the chapter is called uh, War Against the Jews, and it goes into the, the Vance Conference where they they just decide on on they they update the process of the Holocaust. I, what I show is that the Holocaust was an evolution. It was an evolution amongst people on the spot, people in Poland or, or occupied Poland, called the general government. That they were sort of Nazi middle-ranking bureaucrats, and they had to solve various problems. And I show how they solve their problems. Then I look at the Einsatz group and we've got voluminous records of them. They were shooting people. They were getting people to undress, dig pits, and then they were mowed down 
by machine guns by these people from the Einsatz group. And these were SS organized groups. Um, many of them were actually ordinary policemen. The ordinary policemen from Germany were recruited. They were called the Order Police. And they were taken to uh, the Soviet Union after the attack on the Soviet Union in 1941. And they operated behind the main attack army of the Wehrmacht. And behind them came these killing squads. And these killing squads, their pure role was, kill, was to kill people, to round up people. And what you, what we've got are the reports of the Einsatzgruppen. They've survived. So we can see from that, they list how many people they've killed in every place that they go to. And they send those back to Berlin, the six different places they send them to. So we know exactly how many people the Einsatzgruppen killed. And the majority of people that they kill in these mass shootings, they're Jewish. So I think by linking in exactly what happens in the Holocaust with what Hitler says, you see his speeches, his speeches start to mention uh, the, the, the Jewish worldwide conspiracy. He starts to mention that the Jews should be eradicated. And he says this time and time and time again. And even in his last will and testament, he says that it was the Jews that caused the war. It was the Jews uh, that, that, that were, that were uh, pulling the strings of the bombing of Germany. And it was the Jews that he, it was his lifelong aim to eradicate. And I don't think there's any doubt that Hitler... Uh, you know, ordered the Holocaust, but he wasn't intimately involved. He was more involved, as you see from the book. He was obsessed with the military campaigns of the Second World War, and he spent so much time. I mean, I show that when he's in this um, military headquarters, it's called the Wolf's Lair in Rastenburg, East, East Prussia, now in Poland. Um, and he was there for, you know, most of the Second World War. He spent there and he didn't spend his time in Berlin. The number of times he was in Berlin in the war were very small. He also went to his retreat in, in the, the Berghof, which was a mountain retreat. And in the war, he probably spent about nine months there, probably. Then the rest of the time, and in the last period, given the name of your uh, podcast, uh, he spent his time in the bunker. The Berlin bunker is the last. He goes there in January and spends the last period of his time in the bunker. So I don't think there's any room anymore for the Holocaust deniers. There's no room for them here. If they read this, the evidence is so conclusive. I mean, you mentioned this, his obsession with the military aspect, with, with generalship and so on. And you, you, this volume begins with the, the German military machines at its height, sweeping through France, sweeping through most of Western Europe. Well, you question the idea that we're, we're all sort of familiar with of the infallible blitzkrieg that was so powerful and so well organised. Was it really what we think it is? Was Hitler the genius general that he kept telling himself and the world he was? I think the 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 idea of the, of the Blitzkrieg, the myth of the Blitzkrieg, was created around the defeat of France and, of course, our retreat at Dunkirk. What happened in the defeat of France, as I show, is that it was a tactical victory. You know, the Germans didn't have more tanks. Uh, they didn't have more aircraft. They didn't have more artillery than the British and the French. They had a better plan, and their plan was to move through the Ardennes forest, bridge the River Meuse, and then cut through France in, in a blitzkrieg attack with the, the panzer units leaving, leading that attack. But, you know, uh, Germany didn't have, we had decided Germany was entirely run on tanks, but there were only 15% of tanks. Most of the, of the German army was infantry at that time. 
We had more tanks at that time. They organized theirs better into panzer units. We got defeated. So we needed to say that we got defeated by a super, you know, incredibly powerful machine here. And the truth was that, you know, we got defeated because we were in the wrong place. We never met the attack in the Ardennes. There was actually a diversionary attack through Belgium. And really, uh, there was a big corridor that, that, that led all the way to Dunkirk. And that's why the Germans won. It was a tactical victory. When Hitler went to Russia, where the roads yeah. weren't as good, the communications weren't as good, then his tanks didn't work as well because they kept breaking down. Then they had to cope with the terrible Russian winter on top of that. And then when they ended up at Stalingrad in street fighting, you can't use tanks in street fighting. You know, you've mm. got to get out of your tank and you've got to fight street by street. And when they started to do that, the Russians got on top. The Russians were better at street fighting than yeah. the Germans were. The Germans were better at traveling, you know, in motor vehicles and traveling in tanks. And they were less effective in that. And really, you know, they won a tactical victory in 1940. On this question of Hitler as, as a, a military genius, the uh, German generals actually said that Hitler wasn't a military genius, that if they had been allowed to run the war, then Germany would have won the war. It was Hitler's meddling in their decisions yeah. that lost them the war. And what I do in this book, I overturn that by showing that a lot of the big mistakes were made by these generals who in the Nuremberg trials and in their memoirs, they, they put out this idea that, you know, it was Hitler who lost the war by making the wrong decisions. But it, the, the, the biggest mistake Hitler made was invading the Soviet Union. When I was a kid, it was kind of unsayable to say that effectively we owe the victory in the Second World War to the sacrifice of so many Soviet soldiers because your, your, your grandparents who'd lived through the war found it massively offensive. It's like, you know, we suffered hugely, we suffered hugely. But I think you make it clear, and you know, it's, this is now sort of more part of people's understanding, the enormous price that was paid by Soviet soldiers. My dad was in the, in the Navy in the war, and he said most of the people in the Navy and the soldiers of the British uh, Army, they knew that the Russians were, were, were losing you know, millions of men. I mean, there's a, there was a famous saying, you know, my dad used to say that we said at the end of the war, he said the people who fought in it, you know, the, the Russians gave the blood, the Americans mm. gave the money, and Churchill gave the speeches. Mm. When you look at the casualties, they're, they're unbelievable. You know, the, the, the Russian army probably lost, we now think, about 15 million people. That's just the armed forces. They lost on top of that because the figures keep going up because the Stalinist regime lied about the figures. And now the, the, some of the archives have been opened now. We can see it's probably an additional 25 million on top of the army. You're talking now, we thought it was 27 million. It's going up all the time. Now it looks like 40 million uh, civilians and, and, and soldiers in the Soviet Union died in that war. And also, if you look at the war itself for Germany, because obviously my book is about the German war and the German reactions to the war, four out of every five German soldiers who were killed in the Second World War were killed by a Russian soldier. That's mm. 80% of their deaths were on the Eastern Front in the German-Soviet War. If you're a middle-aged English white bloke like me, you know, in your 50s or in your late 40s or whatever, you've grown up with, you've been marinated in this stuff, you know, Battle Picture Weekly and Warlord up th all the way through to Anthony Beaver. You've probably got on a lot of books about the war on, on, on your shelf. Is, is our national obsession with the Second World War and with Hitler 
Is it healthy? You know, he's, he's on the History Channel every night. You've got pro-Brexit memes with Spitfires all over the place. Is it healthy? Do, are, are we understanding it in the right way? I think we're not understanding it in the right way. I think it's it's not good to look back on a period of the past as a sort of this is this was our greatest moment in history. I don't think that's that's healthy and I don't think that's good. We need gradually to understand the war as an alliance, like I'm doing in this book, showing people that it was an alliance involving the Soviet Union and involving America. I mean, look at the V the V Day celebrations. Shouldn't they have invited a Russian soldier to come over and have a little talk? You know, mm. why don't we emphasize that? Why do we just emphasize our role in it? I think what we should emphasize, because it, it, it's still true, is the horror of the Third Reich and the danger of racism and the danger of anti-Semitism. These are the two big lessons of, the, of, of Germany and also how democracy can be destroyed from within. So the three things I would I would say to people to to look for in the Third Reich is how do how do Jewish people, a very affluent group, a very talented group of people, how do they end up through this ideology of Nazism to be sort of scapegoated, then have all their rights taken away, and eventually end up in the horror of the death camps and to be exterminated. That's what we should be emphasising. We should also be emphasising the racism that, that Hitler put out, that people were actually, certain people were Aryans at the top. And also, you know, as he went down through them, gay people, oh, they're a bit suspect. Oh, disabled people, oh, they're a bit suspect as well. Oh, even the long-term unemployed, long-term prisoners and so on and so forth. All the, you know, all the people that he killed, you know, we've got to remember he killed 400,000, uh, you know, Germans through euthanasia, through people who didn't fi quite fit the master race idea. It would be good if we could start to admit, you know, that in actual fact, um, you know, Hitler's army wasn't so overwhelming in 1940, that the invasion of Britain was impossible in 1940, mm -hmm. and that really the war was turned around massively in the Soviet Union in those incredible battles that I relate in that war as well. And also we need to appreciate as well that the American money made a huge difference to that alliance and also helped help Britain as well. So I think that, you know, it's it's it, we need to get a grown-up attitude to the Second World War now. It's not all this sort of... And also our attitude towards Germany, you know, we always equating Germany, aren't we, and attacking Germany you know, uh, Angela Merkel and people comparing her to, you know, so I've seen things on the internet saying, you know, she might be a, a distant ancestor of Hitler and stuff like that. Yeah, it's all you rubbish, know, isn't it? You know, it's absolute rubbish. And I think, you know, what we've got to understand is, you know, Germany's record on democracy and human rights since 1945, it stands up with any other country in the world. Um, you know, yeah. Germany is, does not have an aggressive army. Germany has not been involved in any major war aggressively since 1945. So the Germans have actually learned their lesson. Okay, you could say that we forced them to be free. But, you know, Germany is a model democracy for the last, you know, 70 years. And this period of the Third Reich, as I say in the last chapter, it's a shadow that haunts Germany. What I will say, and I think this is where the fascination comes in, Hitler still has this long shadow over the present. You know, people are still worried about, you know, could democracy fall into the hands of somebody extreme? The whole debate around Donald Trump, it all revolved around, was he another Hitler? Now, you know, as yeah. it turned out, you know, he, he definitely was anti-democratic. We've seen that in the last few weeks, haven't we? 
Um, yeah. But when you think about it, he's not he's not going to win, is he? He's not going to overturn the democracy in America, no. and that that I think that we need to be aware that democracy can easily fall. Frank, it's been absolutely fascinating and sobering to talk to you. The book, The Hitler Years, Disaster 1940 to 1945, is, is available now. Before you go, Frank, on a complete mm-hmm. tangent, we were at Balliol with Boris Johnson, we hear? Yeah, yeah, I was there. I was, there. I was at uh, Balliol, Oxford at the same time that he was there. I used to see him. When I went down to breakfast in the morning, when we didn't have a cafe, we had something called a refectory. It was a huge, massive sort of, you know, oak panel room it was, you know, with a, you know, paintings of all the famous people who'd been there, like Harold Macmillan and Ted Heath and people like that. And I used to see, um, I only knew him as Boris. I'd see him there. And of course, he, he stood out. Why did he stand out? He didn't stand out because he was incredibly intellectual or, you know, he was a brilliant speaker or anything like that. It was his blonde hair. His blonde yeah. hair stood out. And here he is. All right, Boris, how are you doing? And he, he came across to me then as a sort of, you know, a, a young man, you know, quite shy in a way. Uh, he didn't come across as the figure that he became later. You know, that was my memory of him. And then later on, I, obviously, I remembered him. Um, but nobody in that college, you know, picked him out at that time. Nobody there knew that he was the, I mean, they said later he was the the head of the Oxford Union, which is like a kind of big, you know, a big post for people who are going on to be um, politicians. But remember, Balliol was quite a left-wing college or liberal left-wing college. So everybody there was quite right on. You know, so yeah. I mean, it, it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't really a great, it wasn't really a great look to come in and say, hi, everyone, I'm Boris and I'm a Tory. You know, that, <laughs> that wouldn't have got you many friends at Balliol at that time. Um, so, you know, I, I think uh, I, I remember him, you know, just at, at sort of, um, you know, cheese and wine things, you know. Yeah. How could you not remember him yet? But you, you only remember them because of the blonde hair. Things could have been so different if you just shoved him into his cornflakes there, Frank. How, there how times go, could yeah. have changed. <laughs> that's, Frank, that's the one, isn't it? <laughs> I had the chance. But yeah, I had you the had, chance. You had your chance went. and you blew it. <laughs> I blew Frank, it, yeah. <laughs> it's been fantastic talking to you. The book is absolutely enrapturing and terrifying. The Hitler Years Disaster 1940 to 1945. Listeners, thanks for listening. Remember, there are new dailies every Monday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday with a full panel show on Tuesdays. Do subscribe and you won't miss a single one. We hope you've enjoyed this one and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.